scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived. We felt dawn, saw sunsets glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands we throw the torch. To you, hold that high. If ye break faith with those of us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies <coughs> grow in Flanders fields. As Jonathan, the other Jonathan, mentioned this morning, this is the 100th anniversary this morning of the end of the First World War. As you said, the, world, uh, the war that was promised to be the end of all wars. Many of us this past week, uh, last few weeks, have been wearing poppies. Some of us perhaps even watched the ceremony this morning from Ottawa. We remember on Remembrance Day. But what do we mean by remembering? And that's what I want to speak about today. Is it merely to mark a historical event on a calendar? Interestingly, this most famous poem about Remembrance Day never uses the word remember. Instead, it asks us to not break faith with the dead. The dead don't worry about being forgotten. They worry about us breaking faith with them, in which case they shall not sleep even though the poppies grow in Flanders fields. All acts of remembering need to be a remembrance with a purpose. Not only gratitude for what's happened in the past, but a recommitment to the ideals that motivated those who went before. To you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. Keeping the torch aloft and aflame requires a lot more, it demands a lot more than just wearing a poppy in the lapel. We need to remember more than just the poem, we need to remember what it asks of us. Often we hear Santana's famous maxim, those who cannot remember history um, are condemned to repeat it. We as humans are built to have the narratives of our lives told and retold. Like those children who as some might know, but not quite yet. Uh, those children who, as we're all, every exhausted parent knows, hears the, read it again, read it again, read it again. We know that this is how we are built, that if we don't hear and remember, we forget. That's what the Lord's table is all about. It calls us to remember, to do this in remembrance of me. And that's not some passive, recollection of something that happened 2,000 years ago. We need to remember more than just that cross. We need to remember what it asks of us. Of course, human history is full of examples of us not remembering either the past or its lessons. And this was certainly true all the way back to the time when the Israelites entered the Promised Land. Imagine what it must have been like 40 years in the desert the entire previous generation that had left Egypt have now passed away. The ones who are crossing into the Promised Land have only known wilderness. They saw Moses up close. They saw Moses die. They saw Joshua rise up to be the leader of a nation. 
They saw pillars of fire and they saw pillars of cloud that led them, guided them night and day. They ate manna from heaven, physically touched it. They crossed the Jordan River. They saw the walls of Jericho fall down. And then they settled into a land of milk and honey. And then what? And that's where we start our reading today, from Judges 2, verses 6 to 13. At this point, all of the fighting is over. Peace, like this morning, has broken out. And Joshua has no more need for an army. No more reason for them to all be together. And here we start. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at an age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timoth Perez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They roused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They could not remember, and it was ruinous. Now, this may seem like an odd way to start a talk about what uh, the gospel in the workplace and in our lives uh, at work, but I think it's deeply important that we deal with this, this connection with the failure to remember, a failure to remember actively and with a purpose. I'll get back to that later. First, I'd like to talk about the workplace. Uh, as that is supposed to be the theme of it. As I said, uh, I've been uh, practicing law and I've been in business for over three decades and involved in various things within the church and outside the church. And these are three important conclusions I've reached as I've been working through uh, these issues that I find within the church we often are confused. First, I think it's a fundamental error when Christians equate their vocation with their job. It's a fundamental error when we equate our vocation with our job or a career. Often in Christian sermons or books, I've come across this where they confuse the two items, that a vocation is your job. And I have experienced from so many others just great anxiety and misunderstanding as a result of it. If we confuse our vocation with our job, then we risk thinking that God's principal purpose for our lives is that he wants us to be an electrician or a teacher or an accountant or a lawyer. If I confuse a vocation with a career, then if I'm fired or I'm disabled or I retire or I'm bored or I'm just simply incompetent at it, I'm left wondering if I've denied my vocation 
We have jobs, but those jobs can change over time. Our vo true vocation never changes. God's purpose for your life is for you to fulfill your true vocation. We all have the same vocation, and it is our only vocation. And it is this, to reflect God in our lives and to be a witness to what God is accomplishing through the inbreaking of his kingdom. Let's say that again. Our only vocation is this, to reflect God in our lives and to witness to what God is accomplishing through the inbreaking of his kingdom. The Eastern Orthodox Church speaks of Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the Theotokos, the God-bearer. That's how it's translated from the Greek. Theotokos, the God-bearer. Our vocation is also to be the Theotokos, to bear God into the world. It's the call to every Christian to live our lives for God as Mary did. It is our calling to say yes to God's will as Mary did. And as Mary sang in, that, in the Magnificat, which is her praise of him after the, the Annunciation when she was told that she would bear the Son of God, she's prayed that it was being done that his mercy may be remembered. For her, doing this was allowing his, his life his mercy, his grace, to be remembered by the entire nation. The second observation I have about Christians in the workplace, especially younger Christians, and this comes uh, from first-hand experience, since I felt this way when I was starting out, was that there's a sense that perhaps we are waiting, we are expecting, we're anticipating a transfiguration moment at our work when that one special wow moment happens, when all of a sudden everybody will understand the Christian faith, that they will all want to become Christian, somehow we will lead them to the promised land of the Christian tradition. I would suggest that this places too much weight on your job, a weight it cannot bear. It can cause people to leave good jobs with good people around them because they've never experienced that wow moment. Eugene Peterson, I think, better captured the sense of what our pilgrimage in this world is about when he entitled in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It requires patience, faithfulness, intentionality. In Romans 12, we read about how ordinary lives, living ordinary lives, is actually a spiritual act of worship. Now, reading from Peterson's message, this is what in Romans 12 we hear from verse 1. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. That's the holy ordinary, the holy ordinary of our lives. So many of us live wistfully waiting for that transfiguration moment when we don't realize that scripture commands us to live in the ordinary. Michael Horton, uh, who wrote a book called Ordinary, remarked on this. My concern is that the activist impulse at the heart of evangelicalism 
can put an enormous burden on people to do big things when what we need most right now is to do the ordinary things better. We can miss God if we forget looking at him in the daily stuff, looking for the extraordinary moment outside of his word, in conversation with him in daily prayer, family worship, and especially the public gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. Our workplace matters because everything matters. But it need not be where some supernatural moment occurs. It can just be the place where we reflect Jesus to our coworkers and our clients. The third point I'd like to make about our vocations is that, and this is how I'd like to get back to the topic of remembering, is this, that perhaps the most vocational thing we can do when we bear God into this world, when we reflect God in our lives, when we are a witness to what God is accomplishing through the inbreaking of his kingdom, is to begat others into the long line, long list of witnesses to the love of the Trinity. Now you probably know that word begat. In some of the older translations, you see it all the time. It's those passages that list off all of the ancestors that we go through. You, you, you know them. If you come across them, that that's the stuff you skip pretty quickly, right? Because they move to some good scripture. Or it's the stuff that absolutely causes fear if you've been asked to read publicly the scripture that Sunday. And you look at all these names and none of them are pronounceable, right? You know those ones? So that's where the begats happen. Let me read you one of those lists, a portion of one of those lists of begats. It begins at the very beginning of Matthew. This is how the New Testament starts. It starts with the word begat. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Well, so far so good, right? We know those ones, that's pretty easy. Now, watch out. And then Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat Pharaoh and Zarmah the Thamar, and Pharaoh begat Esram, Esram begat Aram, Aram begat Amadab, and Amadab begat Nasan, and Nasan begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Booz of Rahab, and Booz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and so on, and so on, and so on. It goes on for quite a long time. Sometimes, at least in my life, and perhaps you've experienced it in yours, you realize, I'm not going to be one of those great stars of the Christian faith. Sometimes you feel like all you can possibly do is begat, that you take the knowledge of the Christian tradition of a relationship of Jesus with Jesus and pass it on to someone else. Sometimes hoping, I sure hope that they do something better with it than I've done. That sense is very limiting, that, that somehow we just haven't really accomplished what we should in spiritual warfare and becoming a giant for the Christian faith. But what scripture tells us that we feel is quite limiting is actually absolutely critical. In the passage I quoted from Matthew, the reason why those begats start is because the scripture is trying to explain how the parents of Jesus came to know God. From Jesse, the root of Jesse, we come ultimately to Christ himself. Begatting is exceptionally important in scripture. And today, in the scripture in Judges, uh, that we read from Judges, we see the, uh, the opposite proving the point. And that is, we see a generation who did not begat. They didn't pass on to the next generation what they had been taught, what they knew, what they had experienced, what they had actually believed about God. 
There was no witness of the love of God. And the people that I'm talking about, we have to remember, this is the generation. This is the generation that was in the wilderness. This is the generation that actually saw pillars of fire and followed it at night. It is the generation that actually saw manna on the ground and picked it up and were filled. They experienced miracles each and every day. They saw walls fall down. They saw first Moses and then Joshua rise up. This is the congregation. How is it that they knew what they knew? How is it that they experienced what they experienced and failed to pass it on to the next generation? As we noted about Remembrance Day, our remembering needs to be a remembrance with a purpose. Those Israelites needed to do more than just simply remember Exodus. They needed to remember the purpose of Exodus, that God was there to free them from bondage and slavery. And they needed to pass that on to their children as well. But before we condemn that generation, because they did not begat, because they didn't share their knowledge of God with others, we should probably look fairly critically at ourselves. But that, uh, that uh, generation was commanded to begat. Just before the Red Sea, uh, the, uh, the Exodus occurred, in, just as the, the, the sea was passing and we had Passover coming, where you would have the, um, the doorways marked of the Israels, Israelites so that they would not be uh, killed as the Egyptians were going to be killed. Moses instructs his elders as following in Exodus 12. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land of the Lord, uh, that the Lord will give you, as he promised, that is the promised land, observe this ceremony. That's the Passover ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So before they left into the wilderness, they were commanded that once they got to the promised land, that they were to celebrate the Passover and have their children participate. Their children asking them, what does this ceremony mean? And they are to tell them what it means. Clearly that instruction failed once they did get to the promised land. For we found, as in scripture this morning, that an entire generation neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So is this commandment just begat something for parents? And if you're a single person, you know, we can just sort of leave that until sometime in the future. Well, maybe if our culture was such that everybody was a Christian in our generation. But if they aren't, I propose, at least in our culture, they aren't. That this goes, begatting goes far, far beyond simply telling our children. When we begat, we need to speak to a culture that in many ways knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And that is our vocation. That's what we do in our workplace, but also in our schools, in our homes, all throughout our lives. To be a witness to the love of the Trinity. It matters less if you're in, in an engineering office, then you're in an office where the receptionists and the bike couriers are honored and treated with dignity. 
It matters less whatever your profession is and more how you profess your concern for clients and coworkers. In so doing, you are begatting. How we participate in our culture, at work, at home, school, will determine the quality of that witness. That is our true vocation. One last remark. We are all members of the body of Christ, even the Presbyterians are. You'll have to take me on that. Um, but whatever tradition we come from, we know that we all belong to the body of Christ. But we can lose that connectedness, either by something we've done or others. For ourselves, we can lose that connectedness to the body of Christ through sin or isolation. But from others, if we aren't begat, we are not introduced to that body of Christ. Remembering is not only a way to recall the past, but it's again a way to re-establish our membership. The word remember cannot just mean just looking to the back, but actually once again joining us as members to the body of Christ. When we remember, we remember ourselves back into the body in communion, in prayer, in worship, in baptism. All remembering has this wonderful benefit of reinforcing our, our communal membership. May we remember with purpose. May we remember when we begat to others all that the Lord has done. We don't want it said, as it was said in Flanders Fields, if ye break faith with us, who die, we shall not sleep. We belong to a cloud of witnesses that for 2,000 years have lived the Christian faith, and they have passed to us the torch. Hold it high. As we remember it this well, I want to leave you with, the, with some words that you should also remember from Psalm 25. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, if we do not remember, we forget. If we do not remember, how will others know? Grant us, God, the ability to remember all that you have done for us with this purpose, to begat it in our workplaces, in our homes, with our entire culture. And may it fulfill our true vocation to be a witness to what you are accomplishing in the world and a witness